I have good news. Jesus Christ is alive, right? Okay? See, you have a story, right, because of that? Because he's alive, we have a story to sing. We have a song to tell. If you get a chance this week, maybe find yourself with a free couple minutes, about three minutes actually. Um, Google up Steve Martin. Some of you remember him as a comedian from the 70s and 80s, but about 20 years ago, Steve Martin wrote a song, and it's called Atheist Ain't Got No Song. Okay. Just let that sink in for a minute, right? Okay. Atheists ain't got no song because there's nothing to sing about, right? We've got a song, church. We've got a, we had a story to tell. He does a great job with it. It's with a banjo. It's kind of fun. I think you'll, you'll get a kick out of it. But the reason we have a song is because we have a story, and the story is true, and it's backed up by God's Word, and He does things in our life, and we get to explore some of that this morning. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Turn to Luke 15 this morning, and we're going to, we're going to go into a story. Jesus tells a story that we need to hear. He says it in seven verses, and we're going to look at it in Luke 15, verse 1. But what I want to put up on the screen while you're doing that is 1 Peter 3.15. We've been looking at 1 Peter 3.15 as an anchor verse for us to help remind us of why God laid this standard for us. He says this in verse, one, uh, verse 15, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. It, hope, we said last week, is interchangeable with the word confidence. So we're not, we're not wishing in something. We're not hoping in hope. We're, we've got a legitimate confidence. God says you've got a reason for your hope, your confidence. Yet, when you speak to people, you've got to do it in gentleness and reverence. If you have that kind of confidence, people are going to ask you about it. They are. If you're, if you're talking securely about where you're going, and that you've got life in Jesus, and that you've received forgiveness, people are naturally going to want to know your story. So God says you've got to be ready to tell your story. You might be thinking right now, I don't have that much of a story, Mark. I beg to differ with you, and I'm here to help you with that this morning. I want to show you your story in a teaching that Jesus gives us out of the book of Luke. But before we do that, I want to pray with you that the Holy Spirit would be our guide. Would you join me in that? Let's pray together. Father, we come before you this morning recognizing that what we're about to do will fall incredibly short if it's just man-motivated. So we ask and we plead, and, and I personally beg for the presence, the activity, the teaching, the power, the unbridled power of your Holy Spirit. God, that you would re release that in this auditorium. I know that you're here. I know your presence is among us because your, your followers are here and we each have the Holy Spirit within us. But God, what I'm asking is like what the early church experienced, that you would release the power of the Holy Spirit in this place, that we would be bold to talk about you, that we would be reminded again, that we would be encouraged of this story that we have to tell. So Father, we ask that you would teach us, work through your own word, things that you've given us, and make it alive and active for each one of us today. God, I ask for this in Jesus' name, amen. So let's go into Luke 15 in verse 1, and this is uh, the way that Luke sets it up. He says, now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him, the him is Jesus, were coming near him to listen to him. 
If you're not familiar with the Bible, tax collectors and sinners are put into two different brackets or categories here, specifically for a reason. Tax collectors worked for the Roman government. And they worked for the Roman government on an, a kind of like an auction basis or a bid. They would identify a particular city that they believed they could bring revenue in for the Roman government. The Roman government would look at a particular city and say, we need this amount of tax revenue coming from that particular city. A tax collector would place a bid with the Roman government and say, I can establish that form of revenue for you. My fee will be thus. And therefore, they, if they won the bid, the tax collector was allowed to go into a city, set up his tables, and begin collecting, collecting taxes for the Roman government. However, they charged an incredibly exorbitant fee, which they passed on to the person who was being taxed. And as a result, they became incredibly hated and ostracized, not only because they collected huge, huge taxes for the Roman government and they kept wads of money for themselves, but also because they had co-workers that worked with them. They were, they were known as money lenders. And these money lenders would float you alone if you couldn't pay your taxes. In other words, they're loan sharks. And they charged a huge fee. Now, these two worked in collusion together. These two are lumped into the category known as the tax collectors. And then in the other category, we have the sinners. And those individuals are referred to in three categories in the New Testament. They're, they're those people who are openly immoral. They absolutely have no care or concern whatsoever about what other people think, especially the religious elite. And number two, their next category were those who were outcast because of their occupation, because of the things they did in the business world. And the third group, they came into this category because they didn't adhere to any of the religious rules. They were completely nonconformist. If you lived in a world of legalism with the religious elites being in power and you didn't meet their standard, you were an outcast. So these people who were rejected by the religious elite of Jesus' day, you come to the Bible and you open up Luke and you find Jesus is hanging out with them. Matter of fact, he's routinely engaged with them. Jesus is in conversation with loan sharks, prostitutes, all the irreligious people of his day, those who were rejected by what they would consider the righteous people. It's a very sobering thought. And we're finding in verse 1, they're coming near him. So the most despised, the most uncontrolled, the most uninhibited sinners, and I mean by that, their sins are public. They're hanging out with God the Son. You talk about the condescension of God the Son. Wouldn't you love that to be said about you, though, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ this morning? Wouldn't you love it to be said that all the sinners, quote-unquote, are so drawn to you because of the way that you wear Christ that they just want to hang out with you? That's what we're finding in this story. Jesus is a magnet to the social outcast. Observation, I'm just working through this myself this week, and as I'm working through it, I'm thinking, when is the last time I ever heard of all of those individuals who were completely the outcast of the greater Lansing area, being drawn to one place to have God talk. Ever? Like, it's incredibly convicting, right? I, I feel like at New Hope, we're really authentic. And, and we really love on each other well. But have you ever seen this place packed out with all of the sinners of Lansing? 
hanging out together, just wanting to hear more about God, it's really convicting. There's something incredibly attractive about Jesus. In the Greek language, there's certain structures in the way sentences are put together. In this particular structure, it's called an imperfect paraphrastic. And with an imperfect paraphrastic, when it, when it says they were coming near him, it means this is a normal occurrence. It's going on all the time. Why? Because they found acceptance in Jesus. They never found that with the religious people. I'm not talking about approval. There's a difference between acceptance and approval, right? Just say yes. Okay, we'll just make sure we're all on the same page. Okay, there's a difference, right? If you're accepting someone, you're willing to hang out with them, right? But if you're approving of them, that's something totally different. Jesus is not approving of their lifestyle, but he's willing to accept them and let them come in. Now, this is really interesting because in the Greek language, that exact same verb is, is used in reference to how you and I are supposed to approach God the Father today. Look with me on the screen at an example. Hebrews 4.16. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. See, God's writing to us in the exact same way. In the same way the sinners of the first century were drawn to Jesus, God says, come near to me. I'm not going to cast you out. Look what I sit on. I sit on a throne of grace. What does he do from that throne of grace? We may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. So they're being drawn near, according to verse 1, to listen to him. If you're writing notes this morning, maybe even in your own Bible, this is a really interesting component here. The outcast want to hear about God. You catch that? The outcast want to hear about God. They're being drawn to listen to him. What's Jesus talking about? He's talking about God. And they want to hear about him. What's drawn them in? Well, certainly not the self-righteous contempt that the Pharisees battered them with. But here's what draws them in. This compassionate, tender, truthful righteousness. And I've deliberately break that into two categories. Because we can all know someone who's really compassionate, right? But they're not truthful. Or we can know somebody who's really truthful, but no compassion whatsoever. See, Jesus is both. That's what he expects of us, to be tender and truthful. 1 Peter 3.15, be ready to give an account for the confidence that's in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. That's what you see being modeled in Jesus. So you got these people who are completely broken away from respectable behavior, whatever that is. And they're not fitting into society. Some of them because of their business practice, some of them by their lifestyle, and they're completely outcast. So we have to stop and ask ourselves the question because it's common in our society today. Are those people forever lost because of their present life? When Jesus comes and he opens a brand new door by which they didn't have to leave by the legalistic rules, he opens a new door called grace. So those very people who had already shut the door on God because of their behavior, Jesus opens up a new door and says, you need to really understand how you can approach God. And this is precisely what exasperated the legalists living in that day. So look at the response in verse 2. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. You know anybody in your life who's a complainer? Don't look at the person next to you. All right. Do you know anybody in your world who's a grumbler? 
there's a certain characteristic about those individuals. You just don't want to be around them, right? There's a very specific word that's used. There's two Greek words in your notes this morning. One of them you're going to see on the screen right now. It's this word, gongudzo. And so when it talks about them grumbling or murmuring, it's this word, gongudzo. But there's something very significant about it in the way that it's pronounced. It's kind of a fun word to say, so let's let's do it together on three. One, two, three. Gongudzo. Okay. But if you're going to say it like somebody in the first century, you got to say it with the guttural feeling. You got you got somebody in your life who's a complainer who's murmuring. It sounds more like this. Gongudzo. Right. A little snarling of the nose, nostrils flare. That's exactly what's going on here. You know somebody who's complaining? They're they're gongudzoing, especially when you see them refer to Jesus as this man in verse 2. See, they're not even going to do him the honor of pronouncing his name. Even though he's the most famous person in the world, the most highly regarded, thousands flock to him, they won't even say Jesus' name. This man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. Now, it's one thing to welcome people. You know, you're hanging out with them at that point, right? A little fist bump. Come on in, let's talk. That, that's what they're talking about when they say he welcomes sinners. But when they say he eats with them, that's a really decisive action. Because in the first century culture, to eat with someone shows full fellowship. Like, come on, be part of my world. What's going on there? Jesus wants to show them they don't have to be far from God. And what better way to do it than actually spend time with them and eat with them. Now the wealthy people of Jesus' day, they fed those who were struggling, physically fed them by giving money to the synagogue and expected the synagogue to spread the money around. And the wealthy people of that day, they were the Pharisees. They were the Sadducees and the scribes. They were really wealthy people. They would give money to the synagogue to feed people who were struggling, but they would never, unthinkable, never eat with them. So it offends them greatly that Jesus would do this. So rather than seeing in Jesus the mercy of God, they prefer to explain it away. They explain away his compassion by saying things secretly like, he sympathizes with them. He wants to be one of them. Uh, You and I know from reading the stories, Jesus is not associating to engage in their sin. That's not what he wants to do. He's offering the kingdom of God to them because he understands what's at stake. You and I over the last couple weeks have been talking about heaven and hell and why we need to share our story because we understand what's at stake. This should uh, cause us to ask this question. When you know someone in your world who is lost, do they know they're lost? Do they really believe that they're lost? In many cases, no. They don't know they're lost until something traumatic happens in their life or they begin to grasp their circumstances and there is legitimate fear with it and there's a sense of desperation and it's accompanied by anxiety. How am I going to get out of this mess? I think those are the people that are being drawn to Jesus. Well, God says, I've got a solution. I've got a rescue in mind. There's a very frequent metaphor that's used in the Bible when it comes to describing Jesus and God the Father. It's a metaphor of a shepherd. 
God frequently is called the shepherd of his pasture. Psalm 23 comes to mind, for the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Many of you learned that as children. Well, that image is translated over when Jesus begins telling a story in verse 3. He goes into the first century economy and begins talking about animal management. Go with me to verse 3. So he told them this parable saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety and nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? Now, this is a common situation. The picture is this. The shepherd is at the end of his workday. He brings his sheep, his inventory, back to the place that's going to be gated, and he begins counting. A hundred sheep in a flock is a common-sized flock in the first century. And he gets to 99, and he stops, and there's one missing. So immediately, when he finds one missing, he sets out on a quest. Jesus uses, in verse 4, the word lost. And so I use the word lost a lot today because he refers to something very specific when he uses the word lost. I want you to see it used again in Luke 19 on the screen. Luke 19.10 says this, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Lost is your second Greek word this morning. It's this word apolomai. You'll see it up on the screen, and it's in your notes also. But apolomai is actually talking about something very specific when it comes to lost. It's not like losing a coin. Lost is something that's being destroyed, something that is perishing according to the definition here. So all of a sudden, this comes in our mind as a bigger issue than just a piece of inventory. This is something eternal that Jesus is talking about here. When he says, I've come to seek and to save that which was lost, he's talking about his mission on earth. But he's also using the same word in this illustration of these sheep. So in verse 4, we find him going after it. Why going after it? Because he never, ever, ever expects it to trace its own steps back. So God has to pursue. Does God pursue, church? We're, we're told that, that God's a pursuer. He's the lover of our soul. And so he pursues us because he never expects the one that's lost to come back. Verse 4 says, until he finds it. So you've got a really persistent shepherd. He's not going to stop. Now, if you're an economist or a business person this morning, you might be thinking, well, one in a hundred, that's one percent. That seems like a really acceptable loss. That's a pretty small margin there. Seems out of proportion to go on a journey for one percent, especially if you're thinking like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, because they understood that the shepherds, they're hired hands. If, if you're watching over a flock, chances are pretty good you're an hourly employee and you get a paycheck at the end of the week. Whether or not you did a good job is up to your employer. If you lost a sheep during the week, though, it was deducted from your paycheck. But Jesus in John 10 begins talking about what a good shepherd looks like. He calls himself a good shepherd. And he says, I'm not like the hired hands. I'm the one who owns the flock. So when, when wolves come into the flock, the hired hands, John 10 says, they run away. But the good shepherd, he stays. So what we're looking at here is the shepherd who actually owns the flock. So there's something driving him beyond financial interest. The thing that's driving him is compassion. 
Our God is a compassionate church, amen? A compassionate God church, right? Amen? He's a compassionate God. That's what he says about himself. I'm, I'm long-suffering. I'm patient. I'm very compassionate. So many of you know that I love Charles Simeon, an old dead theologian from the 1800s. Um, I just wanted you to see his quote on the screen from 1832. He says, though he has myriads in his fold, he cannot endure to lose one. Nor while so much as one of his sheep is wandering, will he relax his endeavors to bring it back. It's not like it's such great insight there, but I just love the way he writes, right? Okay, it's just incredibly eloquent. A much more eloquent time of structuring words. So let's put ourselves in that place. We're, we're the shepherds. We own some sheep. If you know anything about sheep, you're going to land on the fact very quickly there is nothing more defenseless than that creature in the whole animal world, is there? The, the sheep absolutely should be pitied, right? They have no roar, right? There's no roar. They've got no claws. They've got no fangs. You've never heard of a guard sheep, right? Guard dog, yeah. Guard sheep, no. No roar. They don't even have a mean face. Little wrinkled up nose. Bah. What's that? <laughs> oh, I'm so scared. Don't do that again. They absolutely are destitute of every possible weapon of self-defense. And they have no instinct to go back to find their way. So it deserves the name lost because without a shepherd, a lost sheep is just another meal waiting to be consumed if there isn't a rescue. By the way, when God calls us the sheep of his pasture, it's not a compliment, church, right? He knows exactly how we're wired. He calls us the sheep of his pasture, but don't ever take that as a compliment. Now, the compassion of this shepherd is incredibly evident. You see it in his perseverance. He drops everything and goes after it, and he keeps going after it until he finds it. The second component we see his tenderness in is, is tender care. You're going to see in verse 5, he's going to lay it on his shoulders. Here's what God wants you to catch out of this. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit takes initiative in seeking the lost people in the exact same way. Why does God do that? God seeks the lost because a sinner is destitute without even knowing it. So Jesus uses this parable to form a question. And his question sounds like this. What are you going to do? What do you do in such a case if you've got something precious to you and that precious thing is gone and it's far from you? What are you going to do? So if the lost sheep is the equivalent of someone who's living under the impulse of their own passions, living desperately away from God because they just want to chase their own thing. God's asking the question, what are you going to do? Here's why he's asking it. Because think about who's surrounding him. The religious people who are throwing dirt his way, saying, what are you doing hanging out with those people? So God's asking the question because those who say they belong to him, they don't even stop to evaluate the monumental weight of the issue. But God knows what's at stake. He knows this is the issue between heaven and hell. Watch how God responds. You get a clear view of the nature and the character of God. Verse 5, when he has found it, 
He lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. You're looking at a shepherd with incredible tender care, not beating the sheep, right? There's no cattle prod involved. Stupid sheep, I can't believe you ran off. God doesn't do that. This should really encourage you. If you feel like you're there this morning, maybe you feel like you've wandered a long way from God, God's not beating the sheep frequently. Lost sheep are weak and bruised, and they can't keep up with the rest of the flock. So Jesus is coming into the climax of the story here. Not only the finding of the sheep, but he begins celebrating the rescue. See, what he's doing here for us is he's comparing the joy of the shepherd with that which God feels. Did you know God feels, church? God feels. Were you not created in the image and the likeness of God? Yeah, right? Say amen if you agree with that. Okay, I know you're awake. We were created in the image and the likeness of God. So how did we get wired with all this emotion, all these feelings? Because God feels. And God the Son is saying, there's something that I feel when I save those who get caught up in sin. Why am I emphasizing that? Because the very thing that those who are lost and far from God feel is that God's going to reject them, that they're not going to measure up, that they're not good enough. God says, that's not who I am. I'm not going to hit you with a cattle prod. I'm not beating you. You don't have to have the fear of rejection. I celebrate you when you come back. Go with me to verse 6. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep, which was lost. Now, this is kind of a subtle thing, but it's, it's just me speculating here. But did you notice the shepherd in the story doesn't go back to the pasture with this sheep that he's got on his shoulders? Where does he go? Going, he's going to his home, right? He's not going back to the pasture. And I, I know I'm kind of reading into this probably a little bit too much, but catch what's going on here. Jesus carries... I love springtime with the windows open. It's great. God, you could silence that train anytime. Okay. God wants us to catch this. He's carried this sheep to a place superior as compared to that pasture or that wilderness. Maybe I'm reading into this too much, but it looks to me like he's, he's giving us the thought of carrying us to heaven, rejoicing with those who occupy heaven. Whether or not I'm right on that, here's what I do know. God's saying, this is what I feel. This is exactly what God feels. This is what God does. He backs it up by verse 7. Go with me to verse 7. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. It's one thing when you and I say, I tell you. You, you say something to me and you say, I, I tell you the truth, you've got to hear this. Or if I say to you, I tell you the truth, but when God, the Son, says, I tell you, we've got to step back and really pay attention to what he says when he says, I tell you, because it has a special degree of gravity to it. 
this story has just made an eternal shift. He's no longer talking about inventory and sheep in a pasture. All of a sudden we can see he's talking about something really eternal. And suddenly Jesus begins talking about heavenly things. And he does it as an eyewitness. An eyewitness and an interpreter of God's thoughts. In other words, I know what God's thinking. I know because I've seen it. I know what goes on in heaven. Here's what he wants you to catch. What brings ambivalence to us on earth brings unbridled joy in heaven. Celebration type joy. If you're stuck on that word ambivalence, it just means kind of like mushy middle, mundane. I don't know if it's that big a deal. God says, this brings me joy. So I ask myself, how should heaven respond? It's logical that we see heaven respond this way because the occupants of heaven know better than you and I do what's at stake. They know what you and I were saved from. So they celebrate. They know what we're saved to because they're in heaven. Angels are spectators of your salvation. Did you know that? Hebrews 1.14, we're told very specifically, the angels in heaven who stand in the presence of God long to look into salvation. They're not fallen. They're the holy angels. They've never had to be saved. They long to look into salvation because it's something they've never experienced. And these beings who were created and built for God's glory when they see a soul that's really saved, those who exist to bring God delight, they celebrate. What does that tell you about the significance of salvation? So Jesus is trying to help them get down. Now some of you are probably stuck on the fact that Jesus said the righteous don't need to repent. What's he referring to there? Because we know according to Scripture, everybody needs to repent, right? Well, in this particular setting, he's got the Pharisees surrounding him. And the Sadducees and the scribes who think they're righteous. The righteous don't need to repent. I mean, they're living good on the outside. They look appropriate. They look like they've got their act together. But you and I know there are none truly righteous. Right, church? That's according to Scripture, Romans 3.10. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. I'm going to ask somebody to quote Romans 3.23 for us. I'll even get you started. For all have sinned. Look how many of you know that. How cool. We need to be reminded of that. We've all fall short of the glory of God. You know what that means? Every one of us are sheep. And our shepherd came with compassion from heaven. And he left that throne of glory to rescue us. And having put his life up as the ransom to buy ours back, Victory was scored on the cross, right, church? Catch this. This is really significant to me. He doesn't chastise you. When you come to Him for forgiveness, when you come to Him for rescue, when you're lost and He finds you, there's no cattle prods. There's no beating of the sheep. Conversely, when He regards us as rescued, He brings us home with joy. He calls us his own. See, this is your story, church. That's the gospel. 
The gospel is that the shepherd left eternity to come rescue us. Do you have a story to tell this morning? You do. You put it in your own context of how you need to relay it to someone. But that's the gospel story. God left heaven to rescue me. That's what this means. I am the one. You are the one of the 99. I should get t-shirts made that say I am the one on it. You want to start a conversation? Start wearing that around, right? You're the one what? Well, I got a story to tell you. Try it. I'm going to throw the Jesus grenade into a conversation. Just do that. That's just a wild thought that popped in my head. Here's a, here's a postscript. We're wrapping this up. If you've grown up in church or you've spent any time in the Bible at all, you know there's a character issue in the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees. They've got this character flaw in which they have no problem seeing the sinners as lost. Sinner? <laughs> lost. They have no problem identifying them, but they would never apply that image to themselves. Yet the Bible makes it incredibly clear that all of us have gone astray. That includes even the self-righteous and the religious people. Why are you hammering this so much, Mark? Why is that so important to get it down, to keep this perspective straight? Because you have a story to tell. And people need to know that you need a Savior too because it's disarming to be honest with people to say, this is who I was and this is who I am now. Do you need a change of heart over that issue? I just invite you, if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, just throw that up to him. Say, God, I think I need you to work on my heart on this. Maybe I'm being a little bit too haughty, a little bit too self-righteous. Let me help you with that thought just a little bit. Jesus, and I'm not going to give any commentary, I'm just going to read it to you. Jesus gives in a very short passage an insight into the heart of people who believe themselves to be self-righteous. Look with me on the screen at Luke 18, verse 9. This is Jesus speaking. And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Verse 10, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I pay tithes of all that I get. Verse 13, but the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift his eyes up to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. Here's the real temptation among us as believers in Jesus Christ. The real temptation is that we want to always look good. We do, don't we? we it's just human nature. We want to look good. So we try and put our best face out there all the time instead of making ourselves vulnerable and authentic. That doesn't help people who are lost. I, I need to share with you just an excerpt from an email that was written to me this week from a young mom who's got little toddlers at home who just sent me a quick note and she gave me permission to share this. I asked her in advance. 
Let me just read to you an excerpt from this. This scripture has me so excited. Excited is all in capitals. She's referring to 1 Peter 3.15, be ready to give a defense. One of those God moments where I was looking around thinking, is everyone getting as fired up as me right now? Can I yell amen? Would that be weird? No, it's never weird at New Hope to yell amen. I feel such urgency to share, build relationships, speak Jesus And this is exactly what God has been working on over the last year in my life. Satan wants us to fall in shame behind our mistakes, hurts, and the ugliness of our past. But God works all things together for good. I can testify. God has released me of so much embarrassment from my journey. He's shown me my story, and she goes on to describe it as really ugly and messy, her own words. I'm not going to get into the details of it, but this is what she said. He he has shown me my story is meant to be shared And the world can relate because it also has messy and broken up and lost lives. People need to see a walk with Jesus is not about perfection, but about hope in spite of struggle. The freedom I find in Christ is to be authentic and take my mess and speak Jesus to the people in my path. I realized this this last weekend. That's what he's calling me to. It was as clear as it's ever been not to be a missionary, but to build relationships with whomever he sends my way. She nailed it. Only a very, very small percentage of Christians actually become missionaries overseas. Tiny amount. The greater majority of of us are here. We get to intercept people on a daily basis and share our story of who we are. So that temptation to want to always look good, we gotta check that because the gospel The gospel story leaves no ground whatsoever to glory in ourselves, does it? It gives all the glory to God. He's the one who left heaven. He's the one who came looking for us to rescue us. This salvation was altogether planned by God. It's worthy of him. Only God could conceive of this to the degree as to cause us to cry out, worthy are you, Lord, and our God. For salvation has come from you. I want to pray for you that way as you take on this afternoon. I don't know what you got going on in your day. You do. That God would bring an opportunity in your life to share your story. Maybe tomorrow. Maybe sometime during this week. Let's pray together that way. Father, I pray for each of us that are gathered together, these men and these women, all these students, all the opportunities we have in front of us to intercept that we might have disregarded previously, God. I pray that you would use the opportunities that you bring our way, the gentle conversations that start to cause us to help someone to begin thinking about their eternal destiny. Father, I pray for boldness. I thank you that your Holy Spirit has been present in this place and that we've been able to encounter you. So for every individual father who has identified themselves as a follower of Jesus this morning, would you bless them with courage and strength and boldness to live for you in a world that is desperately seeking for answers? God, I ask for that in the mighty name of Jesus, our King, and all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.